Namaste and good evening to all of you. Tonight, I thought about making a synthesis of a very interesting angle and issue to spirituality. And I didn't really know if I want to give it a title because it's many things summed under one and the same headline, my first instinct was to put it a temporary title like the path of pleasure in spiritual evolution, precisely because of trying to emphasize a certain aspect which by itself sounds a little bit provocative or unusual. If I say the path of pleasure in spiritual evolution, people would say, are you trying to talk to us about the sexual tantra? But far, far from that, sexual tantra is not the only way, the only place where you experience pleasure And there can be as well some amount of pain. Maybe you have pleasure in one aspect and pain in another aspect. And then, for example, what if we think about good food? Traditionally, some people like the Buddhist monks, they are asked to beg their food and therefore to eat whatever is given to them, good or bad, not mattering. Some people, on the contrary, they are asked to eat very meager food, very modest food, very not exuberant type of food, precisely for not uh, stirring up addictions or uh, too much desire or something. So when we say a path of pleasure... I'm definitely not referring to sex. It's true that sex, among others, and in a school like Agama, it's always a very good subject. Sex does give pleasure, and if the whole issue is handled correctly, then sex can be giving you pleasure, but not trouble. It was one of the jokes said by Rajneesh, that some aliens were interrogating some human experts, like what is the biggest joy, and they all said sex. And what is the biggest pain, and they all said sex. No, Like, in the end, something which brings us a lot of joy can bring us a lot of pain. No, Maybe sex doesn't work well, but relationships work fantastically good. Maybe sex works fantastically good and relationships suck. Or maybe both sex and relationships go very well and then one of the two partners gets a cancer and dies. Gets a cancer and dies. You know, it's like I can find a lot of uh, situations and therefore I can find a lot of cases in this and obviously I am not thinking only about Sex. What about luxury? What about comfort? 
What about traveling first class? What about good clothes? What about arts and aesthetics? What about so many other things? No, which sometimes we know that in some religions they will be, in some spiritual paths there will be a no-no, like don't touch that, don't do that. That's the mark of a decadent person. That's the mark of a person who is not spiritual. No, like there were people in Tibet, not all of them spiritual, who were growing long nails for the mere purpose of showing that they never have to do manual work. Like we are Chinese-style aristocrats. We don't have to work. Look at my hand. I have long nails. I will never touch a shovel or some other agricultural instrument. I am not a fucking peasant. I am an aristocrat. People bring me food and serve it on my table. You know? But... So this is also a sort of a luxury of life or pleasure of life. Well, I guess some of the high lamas of Tibet were exactly like that. So, what are we talking about? What is allowed or recommended in spiritual life and what is not? Because most of the spiritualities of this planet are ascetic non-tantric types of spirituality and they most of them preach a certain amount of pain usually self-inflicted pain like you take a whip and whip yourself and then you are a religious person the most simple correspondence if you think about the Roman Catholic, Christian Roman Catholic theology, which praises suffering. Suffering, 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 suffering. Suffering will take you to paradise. Suffering took Virgin Mary to paradise. Suffering, you don't eat, you don't sleep, you don't dress well, you don't wash your leprosy off your skin or whatever you've got, your lice or whatever you've got there. And because you endure pain, preferably the pain of the whole world on your shoulders, then you are definitely going to paradise. But in one of his stupid jokes, again, the same Osho, who was a little bit with one foot in one boat and with one foot in the other. Osho is a typical modern teacher, Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh, who was preaching some of this path of Um, pleasure, freedom, luxury, even debauchery, whatever, you know, wild stuff, then uh, he was getting one other joke on the same trend with the previous one that sex is the greatest blessing and sex is the greatest pain at the same time. He was giving another where St. Peter at the gates of paradise, he loved the St. Peter jokes. You know? And St. Peter at the gates of paradise greets a guy and he says, Oh, you are John, whatever, uh, Walter, and I remember you, you've died of cancer and you've suffered for 10 years before dying 
oh, you paid a lot of pain and so on, step right in, you go straight to paradise, at which a guy who was waiting in line, he turns to his neighbor and he says, oh, it's so good that people who suffered go straight to paradise, because I had a bitch of a wife, and she made my life hell for the last 20 years, and I endured like a martyr, and uh, surely I'm going to paradise after such a shitty life which I had with that woman, at which Peter overhears him over the rank, and he lifts his head and he says, no, no, that's not true, because we don't take idiots in paradise, only people who honestly suffered, you know. So the question is, should you seek for suffering? Does suffering has an eschatological value? Like, is it going to save you? Should you seek for it? Should you produce it? Like, I swear to do Oshava diet till the end of my life. For many people, Oshava diet is equivalent to pain. If not physical pain, then Svadistana, pain. It's like the most boring diet in the world. And if you want, you can have it for the next 20 years, but it doesn't mean you are going to be happy. And when you will see rice after 50 days of eating rice every day, you will go like, ah, yuck rice again, you know? There's nothing wrong with rice. It's a delicious thing to eat, but the boredom, eating it every day for 500 days in a row, can turn the stomach of most people, you know? and therefore all this pain and pleasure is a very relative concept. In Japan, rice was considered a luxury food for rich people in the medieval times. Most peasants could not afford rice at every meal of their day, and therefore they were eating millet. If you will eat one day rice and one day millet, you are going to see that millet is about three times less tasty and three times more boring and dry than rice. So it's like when you have to choose between millet and rice, rice becomes a luxury food. But when you have to choose between rice and rice, then rice becomes hell. And you say, if I see it one day more, I'm going to hang myself because I'm lost like Robinson Crusoe on a wild island and all I can eat is rice, 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 rice again. And therefore, we know that in spirituality... Many people consider that a severe amount or a serious amount of effort, some of it consisting in self-inflicted pain, like you wake up at 5.30 in the morning and you start doing your sun salutations. For some people it's painful, some people can do it easily and happily, and some people who had the a glass too much of wine last night or something, waking up at 5.30 in the morning and doing 12 sun salutations or 108 of them for the case is like a pain in the neck. And thus, the question is, is it possible, is spirituality a painful thing in the end? Because there are people who, whose aspiration is not strong enough I have known such people who today, they did not have a burning aspiration. Last week, 
I chose to speak about the motivations to do yoga, the grounds, among them the aspiration. And we agreed. Not everybody has got spiritual aspiration. Because some people don't even believe in God. So how would they want to discover God if they think there is no God? Then they are like, I don't know. Then I prefer the language of the Buddha because Buddha speaks in a very elliptic and oblique way. He doesn't speak about a personal God and the contact with a personal God. He speaks about the fact that there is somehow associated to the human life, there is a pure form of existence called the void or nirvana or the Buddha nature and that he wanted to reach that Buddha nature because he was afraid precisely of the pain. So you compensate the pain with another pain. Buddha's first noble truth is that the essence of life, that's what's his conclusion. You're going to say he was a great pessimist. Buddha is not cataloged as a pessimistic thinker or philosopher, but still the first noble truth is the essence of life is pain. If you are born, fasten your seatbelt because pain is guaranteed. If you are living in a body in this samsara, there will be pain. No? He doesn't glorify pain. He wants to get away from pain. Perhaps Buddha was a Taurus because he was born in the full moon of May. And then if he was in Taurus, then he probably was a Taurus. If he was at uh, that time, he was a Taurus. And maybe he was ruled by the planet Venus. And the people ruled in astrology by the planet Venus, they are generally hedonists and Epicureans. They are not looking for pain. So Buddha looked and saw that life is shitty for everybody else. And he thought, it's going to get shitty for me as well, inevitably. And thus, how can I do to die without experiencing that pain? How can I pass away by bypassing the pain? And Buddha found a method, the whole Buddhism, the whole Buddhist method, it's true, it's divided in three different forms of Buddhism today, which are practically different from each other, but Buddha would say, my path is a path to avoid the pain. But there have been Tibetan Buddhists who ate sand for six months per year, because they didn't have tsampa and rice, and then they could afford only sand, because sand was for free. No, they didn't have money for rice, or very little, no? And then, basically, I avoid the pain of samsara by using the pain of sand. It's just by avoiding one pain with another pain, which is considered that it's worth it. By considering that this pain is less than the big one which is coming if you don't do any spiritual effort. And I'm not saying that Buddha was not right. But still, even in the path of Buddha, who is most probably a Taurus-born Venusian person, he is decided to avoid the great pain, and instead of this, he uses a small pain. The pain of asceticism, the pain of constant effort, the pain of begging, the pain of not owning, the pain of different other frustrations, which for some people trying to, to practice that path, it was 
a form of pain. Christianity praises pain. You should go in the footsteps of Jesus. If Jesus took a great pain on his shoulders, you should at least have the balls to take a small pain on your shoulders. But still, it's about live your life. Preparation of our Kamalatmika initiation here in the school in a relatively short time. And also, when I received questions, as you know, people may send questions online to the school on various email addresses or telephone accounts. And people are often saying, I have here at least five samples of questions, like how to handle situations, health conditions, relationships in life which seem not possible to transform and so on. Or can you talk about longevity in relationship to the development of consciousness? Like should I live a long life or is it is enough to live 33 years like Jesus or 32 years like Shankaracharya or something? Where do we go with this? The concept, somebody asks, of an importance of ego in the human beings, in the evolution, in the levels of consciousness and of the different body. Like, is ego a necessity or should we take the hammer and squash the ego painfully? No, for many people to deal with their own ego in a heads-on way, in an aggressive way, can be very painful. I have known spiritual teachers who early in the yoga life, they were asking their students, who are people with material possibilities, to go in a big city and beg. Beg like a beggar on the street, sitting down on a carpet and begging for hours and days at a stretch. Just so people should spit on you, despise you, give you disparaging words, tell you, go and work, you fucking parasite, and so on, you fucking junkie, and so on. All sorts of reactions, you know, just to humiliate yourself and to see how it is to live in a humble way. That, many people who tried that, they said it was painful. It was a painful experience because the ego wants to thrive. And then should you have a great personality or should you diminish it as much as possible? Somebody asked me about the Buddhist concept of dependent origination from a tantric perspective, like all the karmas are related, we are living in an ocean of this causal energy of karma and it's all interrelated and it has a dependent origination It's not that everything is random, everything is dependent on an origin. Or somebody was asking, a couple of people were asking questions like how to see Maya as a friend and not as an enemy. Maya is illusion or reality because in the Indian culture, Maya is presented mostly as an illusion. And even in the early Buddhism, samsara is presented as a great delusion in which the human being stands to experience pain. And thus, uh, you know, some people would say, we'll talk about the man-woman relationship in Tantra. I just chose five or six questions, which, by the way, most of these questions, they don't warrant a whole lecture, like I'm giving a whole satsang, and they maybe take 20 minutes of explanations or pointers, and therefore most of these questions which you heard and others, I will answer them in the Q&As, maybe the coming Tuesday or something. 
but they all of them reflect the same fundamental issue. What is the attitude in yoga? And what does Agama say, Rekte, what does Swami Vivekananda Sarasvati have to say about such complex issues, which in some cases they are black, in some cases they are white, in some cases there we find some shades of gray between those, and therefore by meditating on this I said, okay, there is a pattern here, Because people, in the end, they want to understand there is a path of pleasure, there is a path of joy, like is spiritually exclusive spirituality exclusively made out of painful tapasya? Is spirituality made of renunciation, painful detachment, effort, and... If not, then what would be the opposite of it? What would be the alternate road? Who took it? What are the tenets of it? How far can you go on that path? When I first thought about this, first thing which I remembered is one of the major literature of Hermann Hesse, I don't remember if this is the one which got him the Nobel Prize for Literature or one of the others, the Glassbead Game, Siddhartha or others, but the German, Swiss-German novelist, Hermann Hesse, he wrote a wonderful piece of literature which originally was called Narcissus und Goldmund, Narcissus and Goldmund, and it has been translated like Death and the Lover, And if I remember correctly, when I saw it translated in Denmark, it was translated like sun and moon, like two opposite things in a way. And this Nazis and Goldmund is exactly presenting a little bit of this theme without references to Indian Tantra or Tibetan Tantra when it refers to Goldmund being a German Christian ascetic, an ascetic living in monasteries and practicing the Christian way in a monastic German way, allegedly a Catholic because the Protestants don't have monks, they don't have monasteries and monks in general. And there, indeed, Narcissus and Goldmund, Narcissus and Goldmund, they are like brothers, childhood friends, and then their paths are splitting. One of them becomes a celibate and a monk, and the other one becomes what we would call today a bohemian. Bohemian, not in the me, because bohemian sometimes is bound to mean gypsy, like gypsy blood. The gypsies were nicknamed bohemians in some countries of Europe including with a reference to the Czech Republic of today, where one part of it is called Bohemia, and like the Bohemians were supposed to come from the mountains of Bohemia, which is a long, long story. We don't have the time to analyze such a story today. But Bohemians was equivalent to the gypsies. It's the same wavelength which takes you, those of you who saw it a couple of years ago, the movie which emerged and which was called The Bohemian Rhapsody, 
which was nothing else than, than the biography of Freddie Mercury, gay, homosexual, cabalistic, magic type of guy, full of money, of course, as well, being a successful musician of the late 20th century, you know, but definitely inclined to sex, drug, and rock and roll, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and being a typical temperament where you will see a little bit of this. In the end, when you think about a lot of the musicians, you find that more than half of the great art producers, especially musicians, they lived powerfully, not simply, powerfully they lived on drugs, alcohol, chaotic sex, and rock and roll, so to, to add to the formula. And many of them, from Jimi Hendrix to Freddie Mercury, they died in their 30s, 40s, 50s, definitely earlier than they should have died as a normal person, and most of them because of overdoses, because of cancer induced by alcoholism or other similar things. From Whitney Houston to you name it, whoever, guitarist from wherever, they, many of them had these insane lives, which was funny because they created things which a whole generation or two generations of people loved and worshipped. Their music, although not all of it is great, for me, it doesn't have the spiritual resonance. Most of it has a lot of dirty Svadhisthana and a lot of dirty Manipura in it. But whole generations, like the music of the Beatles, is a music which is generally disharmonious Manipura with a lot of stupid Svadhisthana attached to it. When we all live in the yellow submarine, you are not going to Sahasrara. When you sing the yellow submarine, you are in Manipura and Svadhisthana. You know, and it's not even a good Svadhisthana or a good ma. It's not the Svadhisthana of Lakshmi Devi. It's a Svadhisthana which is shitty. But of course, Paul McCartney is still a billionaire. You know, like it's a sort of Svadhisthana and Manipura, which produces lots of money, lots of comfort, lots of caviar and champagne, lots of hedonism, lots of pleasures of life. Lots of silk clothes and first-class travel and other and other uh, perks of life. So I'm not saying it's necessarily clean, but it is related with this lifestyle. And it seems to be a mark of Kali Yuga. The fact that in Kali Yuga, lousy artists producing lousy music and lousy other things. You have people who are multi-multi-millionaires by producing porn. You know, producing tons of pornography. They are very rich people who got rich from pornography. You know, it doesn't mean that if it makes you rich, it's automatically the good thing. And again, we know that we can go in that direction a lot. You know? And yet, there is here something. This bohemian Narcissus, Narcissus, when he dies, he dies young, as expected, because he burns like a candle. He burns himself like an oil lamp. Like in that famous hippie song from the same years, which is not the Beatles, I forgot who it is because I'm not very interested in this kind of music, 
and therefore I don't tend to memorize the things, which says too much wine and too much song, wonder how I got along. No? That's the whole, it's a mark of a generation. Most of these artistic bohemian people, they go in too much wine and too much song and too much many other things. And the question is, is there a way to have to take a part of this fun, to take a part of this immoderation? It's a lack of moderation which destroys our life. Will it take us to any wisdom or to any spiritual realization? This Narcissus of Hermann Hesse, of course, is the wisdom of Hermann Hesse. Narcissus is a, it's a character, it's a fictional character in his head. But this fictional character, when he dies, his friend Goldmund, like an advanced monk, an old advanced monk and ascetic, a holy man, is there tending to him. Like he has been his brother all his life. But his brother went into riotous lifestyle, into bohemian lifestyle, being a nomad and a drunk and a fornicator and everything else that you can conceive. And they talk, they have a short philosophical talk when they are about, when Narcissus is about to die. And it's like Goldmund is the upper hand. He is the spiritualist who is about to bless him as he dies. And as he dies, this Narcissus looks at him, he investigates to him about the feminine aspect. Like he talks in a German way about Shakti, you know, about the feminine aspect, even in Christianity, which is there, because Virgin Mary is there, the feminine is there, deified. Virgin Mary is like the goddess of Christianity, is like the Tara, the mother of Christianity. So, Narcissus says, but what about this feminine? What about this? And Goldmund is not there. He's not on that page. And Narcissus shakes his head. And the last words which he says, he says, I wonder how will you be able to die without having a mother? You know, because the archetypal being is father and mother. It's Shiva and Shakti. As we know in the Tantric tradition, we cannot dispense of the Shakti aspect. And basically, Narcissus says, I have been the bohemian guy who worshipped the feminine, like I got lost in Maya, I got lost in Samsara, but I am so much in touch with the mother, and you have been praying in your cell or in a church, and you might be in touch with the father, but it's like you are motherless. Like there is no, there is missing something loving, compassionate, maternal. And therefore this superb book, which I recommend that you should read once in your life, this splendid book is bringing up exactly this, that in some spiritualities the feminine seems to be absent. And when the feminine comes, it seems to come with chaos with pleasure, with lack of control, with no tapas, which of course is not true. Tantra has demonstrated plainly that that is not true because even with the most lovely shaktis like Sundari or Kamala or others, you can make a lot of tapasya and lots of mantras and lots of discipline and lots of other amazing things, 
And therefore, it doesn't mean that the maternal aspect doesn't mean a sort of a discipline. Now, Osho Rajneesh, who was a maverick and a provoker, when he wanted to confront it, he confronted it in almost blasphemous ways. He said, you want me to be like Jesus Christ? But he said, can you imagine the blue marks which will come on my shoulders if you make me carry a cross? A big, heavy, wooden cross. It will break my shoulder. And he said, I'm a delicate guy. You know, I'm taking three showers per day. No, I don't want a cross on my shoulder. And therefore, he said, if I will ever have to carry a cross, you'll have to put it on one of my Rolls Royces, you know. Like, I will carry it in style. Like, I'm a hedonist. I'm a bohemian. Even if you crucify me, I'm going to be crucified in a luxurious way, in a pleasant way. Not like the other fellow who died with a real cross on his shoulder and with nails in his arms. For most Christians, this would be blasphemy. I've seen a documentary done in the 1980s by the Mormons or some Baptist evangelist church from America who was rabidly against Bhagwan, against Osho, and they made a documentary which is one of these sectarian Christian, like, you know, really really sort of low-intelligence type of, uh, you know, really sectarian, narrow-minded, you know, and they are pointing to all these things and any other provocative or bohemian thing which existed in the Rajneesh movement, especially as they made fools of themselves as they went to America, to Oregon, and there they got screwed by Uncle Sam or whatever his name is, the American government, has a usually is symbolically called Uncle Sam and others. And um, therefore, you, know, you could see that every time when somebody mentions pleasure, fun, for some people, it's like the devil. You know, when people listen to Rajneesh being his disciples, they were laughing. They were enchanted. Like, look how different our guru is. He is ready to provoke all the narrow-minded bigots and sectarians and so on. On the other hand, we have to see exactly how it worked, to which level it worked. It goes to such an extent that the devil, the devil, Satan, the adversary, as it was called in the Jewish and other traditions, In the Christian tradition, when it was reverted to Latin from Jewish and Greek, Aramaic, Jewish, Greek, Hebrew, Greek, and then to Latin, very often the the devil was nicknamed Lucifer. But Lucifer is the same name which the Romans gave to the morning star. And the morning star, in case you don't know, it's always the planet Venus. And the planet Venus is the symbol of all that Freddie Mercury stuff. Taking liberties and living bohemian and luxurious. And the Christians simply called it Lucifer, which means the devil. Like if you even dream about going in the direction of Venusian things, you're lost. The devil has you. That's Lucifer. You can see in the lifestyle of the Jewish prophets of old, 
of the Christian mystics, monks and nuns, and even of many of the Sufi mystics of Islam, that none of them is preaching any margin of luxury. Because luxury has been taxed as Lucifer, the devil. In Buddhism, most of the monks, at least in the simple paths of Buddhism, like the Hinayana of Thailand and of Southeast Asia and many others, they are bound to live in extreme modesty. They are even required to beg their daily food and not to own property of their own, thus never getting rich, never living in abundance, never living in... And again I'm saying, I'm not denying, and I'm not saying that these people did wrong or that they were wrong choices, but I am telling that in the 21st century, many people will say, if I will ever convert to Buddhism, I will do it when I'm 75 years old and maybe having cancer already, so I will not fucking care anymore. When I will not be able to eat Kentucky Fried Chicken anymore, then I can go in a Christian monastery or in a, when my teeth have fallen and uh, whatever, then I can become an ascetic because it won't fucking matter anymore because I'm 80% dead already, and then I'm, at least I can die in style, pretending that now I have wisened up and I'm doing some spirituality. But remember Hermann Hesse. How can you die without a mother? Like, it's like you, are, you have only one brain hemisphere. It's like you have only half of the reality. It's like there is something incomplete and I often told you that in many spiritualities this male oriented thing was there and still is there and no it's like you are wondering you know like obviously if you ask me and not because I am on the side of Goldmoon Uh, If, uh, I don't know, Freddie Mercury made it to paradise, I will say probably no. Probably the dude went straight to hell. Yeah? But not because of the Bohemian Rhapsody. Because of interpreting that in a wrong way. Like people who are taking such a path, they are like, okay... I'm condemned, I'm going to hell, fuck you all. No, from the very beginning it's like they accept darkness. Because there is a love for fun, but you cannot put it together with the normal religious feelings. And because of that, you choose. If you have fun, you go to hell. And if you want to be correct religiously... You have to refrain. And then many people will say, you know what? I go to hell. I choose to go to hell. Fuck you with all your enforcements, with all your asceticism, pain, self-punishment, and all that. For some people, as I'm going to show, for some people, 
this is inevitable. There are people whose spirituality must, needs to have painful commitment, effort, self-whipping, because otherwise their own subconscious mind won't take them seriously. They can't take themselves seriously. It's like, come on, man, I look in the mirror and I know that I'm lying even to myself. If I'm not doing something which will make the next generations cry with emotion when they will read about my life. This guy was eating a grain of rice only every day. Wow! You know? Like, there are people who have their subconscious like that. And then if they don't do that, they feel that they cheat themselves. They feel that they lie. But I want you to know that that's not the universal truth. I, in Agama, only from time to time, and in a limited way, I use the system of classification of the human being according to the Enneagram. Because it's a very new and largely uncontrolled domain, truly classifying human personalities in the nine typologies happened with Oscar Ichazo in the 1960s or 70s, a Chilean guy who took over the system of Gurdjieff, Uspensky, then there was a school of the 60s called Arika. The people, those of you who have seen the Holy Mountain, that's exactly the environment where this Alexandro Jodorowsky, the man who made this crazy and colorful movie called The Holy Mountain, he was exactly from that environment where they mixed up everything with everything, tarot with astrology and uh, alchemy with tantra and you name it. And um, in that system, they took out to light the system of classifying the human personality in nine typologies. And uh, I prefer to classify people according to their dominant chakra, seven typologies. I prefer to classify people according to their temperament, the four elements, earth, water, fire, air, four typologies. I prefer to classify people according to their planetary influence and astrological sign, 12 typologies, like the 12 signs of the zodiac. I am capable to mix those three and create composite categories, like this person is a Virgo, but also very fiery and at the same time um, uh, dominant on Svadhisthana chakra. So how would be a Svadhisthanistic but fiery Virgo? No? And so on. And many of you could have already a picture in your head about such a person. No? To a certain extent, that's how Freddie Mercury was, because he was a Virgo, in case you didn't know. But then, this other angle, you look at the human being from a totally different perspective, and then you can classify the human being in nine. A couple of years ago, one of the students of the school here present in the hall asked me to give more details about what is this Enneagram thing, and I showed in that lecture, I don't remember if it was a satsang or if it was in the Q&A, I gave a long presentation of how 
the nine things from the Enneagram, they are not random and they are related to the structure of the Hrid Chakra and therefore with the structure of the human soul because Hrid Chakra is a chakra which is representative of the Jivatman, of the structure of the individual soul of the human being and all that. And thus, uh, again, in Agama we are aware of the Enneagram. We don't use it exhaustively. But in this particular respect of the theme, which I chose to debate with you tonight, there is a very beautiful story there, because one of the nine temperaments on the Enneagram, which bears the number seven, and which generally is called different names, People, it's a new tradition and people don't know. It's more new than the discovery of Plutone and Neptune and Uranus in astrology. So we don't know much about what Pluto, Uranus and Neptune do in astrology, but they are older than 60 years. This story is less than 60 years old and therefore there are lots of gaps and holes. Some interesting books have been written Nobody in official literature, in published literature, nobody made the connections with the nine aspects of Hrid Chakra. Nobody made uh, other numerological connections with three times three, like the three gunas three times, or with the nine blessings listed by Jesus in the Bible. Blessed are the poor in spirits, for they shall see God. Number one, and there are nine. Is that just a numerological coincidence or there is something? What about the nine heavens from Kabbalah, that there is Muladhara, the earth, and then nine subtle realms corresponding to the nine sephiras, which are on the tree of life above the one corresponding to the material world? And I could continue the list. It's a numerological amazing list. And I, because I did such a lecture, either in Q&A or in satsangs, I don't remember. Those of you who are in the school, you definitely can locate it somewhere. You can find it somewhere. And I'm telling you all this because there I was speaking about the fact that these Enneagram typologies are not chaotic or random, invented by some guy from Chile, or by some Sufi from Afghanistan, or by uh, uh, George Ivanovich Gurdjieff himself, but that they actually did correspond to, the arche to some archetypes in the human being. And one of these archetypal natures, exactly as in the spokes of Hrid Chakra, is oriented towards pleasure. <clears throat> and when commented the Enneagram, I remember first time when I heard about it, a yoga teacher from Eastern Europe, who once upon a time was my student in yoga, and um, who was a little bit superficial, as he was a scholar, but a little bit not a number seven on the Enneagram for sure, when he started talking about it, that's how I, because I heard he was giving some lectures, and then I said, is it worth it for me to look into it? Because this is a smart guy. If he found something interesting there, it might, you know, 
It took me years and years to motivate myself and to say, okay, let's spend some, maybe a few days on this story and so on. And then, and I was surprised because this number seven in one of the best books written about it by quite competent authors who know what they write, it's called The Enthusiast, which is a name which I like very much because enthusiasm comes from, enthusiast comes from the Greek two words, enteos, which means in God. When you are enthusiastic, you are enthusiastic because your jivatman is connected to God and God is pouring in your heart an endless stream of enthusiasm because you are in connection with the enthusiasm factory of this universe and the enthusiasm factory in this universe is the spirit of God. And the people who are full of spirit, they get enthusiastic very easy like children. And people who lose some of this enthusiasm, they become less of that. But it was funny that this acquaintance of mine who spoke about it, from whom I got inspired, like, okay, let me look into this, see if there is something. When he spoke about it, he used the two most disparaging words. There are about ten words which describe the number seven, and he used the worst two of them. And people who attended his lectures, like Ananda Maha, they told me it's like he was talking about hell. Like, there were nine typologies, but at least one of them seemed to be doomed to go to hell. And that was number seven, which proves cl clearly that this person never understood number seven and was afraid of this typology because it was definitely not like his own. He said, if I would be like this, I would probably end up in hell. That was his view on it. And he called it the hedonist, the epicurean, the generalist. Hedonist, hedonism, read about it in Wikipedia or some similar place, is a, one of the philosophies of antique times. It was also preached by a Roman philosopher called Epicure. And Epicure, that's why people practicing this philosophy... Some people are Spartan, some people are Stoic, some people are pessimists, some people are hedonists or Epicurean. And that means those are the people who say, let's eat, drink and be happy. And it's like, man, you will go straight to hell with this philosophy, right? Like, you will never reach divinity. It's very strange because it sounds like God created nine typologies and one of them is automatically on the road to hell. Because it's the one which, like Narcissus in that novel, is seeking for hedonism, is seeking <coughs> for joy, perhaps a bit too much. Again, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, as the American syntagm goes for that and there are other names for this generalist also is one of the bad ones because generalist is like the generalist doctor 
is the one who knows a little bit of each, is the family doctor, but is not the one who goes and is a cardiologist, is a nephrologist, is a gynecologist. He knows something about a subject and when you have a complicated problem, your generalist family doctor will always send you to a cardiologist, to an endocrinologist, to somebody who knows well the details of that. Because he says, I know only on the surface. So the generalist is a superficial person who picks up a little bit from here, picks up a little bit from there, but never going deep. For this man, is like a superficial person, hedonist, Epicurean, and this looks like a loser who is going to hell. Other names given to this typology, just for your curiosity, is the enthusiast, which is much more redeeming, multitasker, wunderkind, dilettante, connoisseur, which are almost opposite words, energizer, which is part of the enthusiastic things. And some of the quotes which are associated with this typologies, one of the most typical hedonists of modern, almost medieval Europe was the scandalous French writer called Voltaire, who was very anti-religious, very provocative, very scandalous, French Revolution type of character, and he states very clearly in one of his thoughts, pleasure is the object, the duty, and the goal of all rational creatures. Like, if you are a rational creature, you must be looking for pleasure, because that's the object and the duty and the goal, because what else would you look for? Should I say that pain is the object, the duty, and the goal of... Then you are not rational, not according to Voltaire. But if you are John the Baptist or somebody who whips themselves, a la Teresa of Avila, then a certain amount of pain seems to be your duty to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. If he took some pain on him, you have to follow in his footsteps and take your share of pain on you. And then pain becomes the object. But Voltaire, that's why he didn't like the Catholic Church. He was born a Catholic. But he stepped out of it. And then he stepped in because he felt guilty. And then he stepped out again. And I think by the time he died, he reconverted the third time to Catholicism because he was afraid of death. Like this guy from Nazis and Goldmund, you know. He didn't... Then, gold, then Hermann Hesse came much later... And he wrote that thing. Or Epicurus himself, the Epicure, the Roman philosopher, Greek, Roman philosopher, whatever he was. No pleasure is evil in itself. He is very smart in saying this. But the means by which certain pleasures are gained bring pains many times greater than that pleasure itself. Aha! So, the problem is not the pleasure. No, the problem is not possession. The problem is attachment to the possession. Possession possesses the possessor. So, if you could possess with detachment, then possession would not be a problem. 
Not sex is the problem, as we demonstrate in the Brahmacharya lecture. The problem is the loss of ojas. And therefore, one has to point exactly. Epicure, he said, wait a sec, maybe he was a number seven. And he tried to find philosophical ways to be a number seven. And in the end, he came up with the intelligent conclusion. He said, wait, it's not the pain, which is, uh, sorry, it's not the pleasure, which is the problem. The problem is that sometimes we chase for that pleasure in very, very wrong way, which damn us to hell. And that's a different story. The same can be said about sex. The same can be said about food. The same can be said about richness and possession. Same can be said about a lot of things. Even the famous Saint-Exupéry, he expresses it in a more roundabout way, but still he touches this issue by saying, how could there be any question of acquiring or possessing when the one thing needful for a man is to become, to be at last, and to die in the fullness of his being. So the question is not if you have or you don't have, or if you acquire. It's not a matter of competitiveness or this. It's a matter of that you have to be. And if you are, like this Nazis in Hermann Hesse, or like what people like Freddie Mercury and a hundred other Epicureans who lived with sex, drugs and rock and roll in from the 60s until today. All these people were trying to shine through what they were. And they did not think, they said, I am inclined to pleasure. And when I take some pleasure... I am shining. I am happy. The biggest consumption of one medicine in the court, in the imperial, royal imperial court of Queen Victoria, the great Queen Victoria, empress of the British Empire of the end of the 19th century, the biggest medicine administered by her doctor to her on a daily basis, sometimes even several times per day, was cocaine. In those days, cocaine was not a prohibited drug. It was completely legal. Until 1930 or 40, most of the drugs were free. Heroin, cocaine, they were free. Opioids, opium, anything, it was for free. The doctors could prescribe it freely. But Queen Victoria, today, the mothers tell to their children, cocaine is going to kill you. Because look what happens to all the drug addicts. Queen Victoria lived 84 or 87. She was a meat eater. She was a Gemini. That means she was not, if you'd say she was a Taurus, you'd say maybe she had an endless vitality. She was a Gemini. She was an air sign, astrologically. She was having all the wrong diet. She was not a Bulgarian yogurt vegetarian or a kefir eater from 
Caucasus. She was a beef eater from England. And she took cocaine one, two, three times per day. Whenever she was bored or tired, she got into cocaine. When she felt that she had to have a lot of Manipura to deal with the people who are trying to pull her leg, because she was the biggest queen in the world of that day, like even the emperor of Japan was a kid in terms of soldiers and surface of the empire compared to Victoria, like Victoria was ruling the British Empire at the climax of the British power. No? And she had to have a Manipura to rule that. And she was not dismissed. She was not thrown in a hospice. She was not taken to a mental institution. She stayed on that throne until she died. And sometimes she had to meet with very Manipuristic people like the leaders of Germany, the leaders of France, the leader of God knows whom, who are coming, and they are trying to kick her in the balls, because they thought she had balls. And then she was taking cocaine before those meetings, to give them some Manipura back. So actually cocaine, if you take as much as Queen Victoria took, it will not kill you, it will just give you a bit of Manipura in your daily life, Especially because somebody could have said, Victoria, do 10 Udiana Bandas, and on top of that, do 25 Naulis. You don't need cocaine. She didn't know Naulis. And she was so fat, she probably couldn't do Nauli anyway. No? And therefore, her Nauli was called cocaine. No? So in this way, what, what are you trying to say? What are we speaking about? No, because... It's like helping yourself, having fun, doing this, doing that. Is that bad? Or is it the fact that people lose track? There were people who took heroin once a week for a lifetime and they lived 80 years of age. The discoverer of LSD... Hoffman, whatever his name, Albert or Alfred or whatever, Hoffman, he took LSD until he died, at least once a week. And he died at the age of 103. And I had a friend who met him when he was 92 years old, and he was chasing young girls to fuck them. He was a womanizer at 92. And he was an LSD consumer. So what are we talking about? The fact that there is the scarecrow that all these things make you sick and you are going to die and you will be an addict with a weak willpower. And the will Queen Victoria did not become an addict with a weak willpower. And even people taking other things. So obviously, it's not the pleasure. If you are going to look at the loser movie, Train Spotting or something like that, the British movie, where you have about heroin addicts, the world of heroin addicts, one of the girls there in the very first two minutes says, you know, want to know what heroin is like? She says, imagine an orgasm and then multiply it approximately a thousand times in your brain. And then you will know what a heroin shot does to your brain in the first minute. No? It's like, is it forbidden to have that pleasure? It's illegal in most of the countries of the world. But illegal doesn't mean forbidden by God. 
It just means forbidden by people. So is it illegal? Or the, the danger is that you will ruin your willpower and you will become addicted. Like there are people who cannot even quit smoking, for God's sake. Those people, if you give them heroin, they will definitely become addicted. Then they will become so greedy of it that they will up the dose and up the dose and up the dose and up until they would become mad. And then one day you get an overdose and then people say, see what drugs do? No. Overdoses of drugs do that. A little bit kept Queen Victoria running for a lifetime. Her husband died when she was 37 or so. She didn't have sex from 37 to 84. And she was a Gemini with a big Svadhisthana. And you can think that maybe she wanted some. She couldn't get. She got cocaine. No? But she didn't die of an overdose. So that's what I'm trying to say. This world is ready to judge any pleasure. You fuck too much. Uh, you should have sex with one woman. Maybe if you divorce her, two. And if you divorce the second one, three. And if you divorce the third one, you are a fucking fornicator. You know? It's like... People would criticize everything which is too pleasant. Because everybody lives in the shadow of those religions which think it's Lucifer. It's the devil. Too much pleasure will corrupt your soul. And therefore, sex, drugs, wine, too much wine and too much song, rock and roll in this case, or whatever it is, it will destroy you. Surely, it did destroy Elvis Presley. He had too much sex, too much drugs, and too much rock and roll. And it did destroy him. And thus, I'm not saying that you are not playing with the fire. But I don't know. There are people who allegedly killed themselves by cleaning a loaded weapon. They had a weapon in their house, and they cleaned it like this, and the bullet went through their orbit. You know, because the idiots forgot to discharge the weapon before cleaning it. No? Like, you cannot say, see, guns will kill you. If you look in the barrel while it has a bullet on the barrel, of course it will kill you. No? And thus the question is, which pleasures will kill you and which pleasures will not kill you? That's why I wanted to say the path of pleasure in spiritual evolution. Is it possible to have spiritual evolution with joy and fun without getting lost into it and dying from an overdose or from a bullet in your eye? Is it possible? Can one man... Do there exist such paths? What is the path for a number seven? Let's call him Walter. When this Walter comes to yoga... It doesn't matter if it's Agama or any other yoga. Because, let's speak about a practitioner or a teacher who is a perfectionist. That's the number one. Can you imagine that if Paramahamsa Yogananda says, you have to practice eight hours of straight yoga every day. 
A perfectionist will consider himself that he goes to hell if he did five, 7 hours and 59 minutes. Because that's why it's called perfectionist. It has to be 8 hours plus because Yogananda said so. And if you touched a half of a glass of red wine on Monday, you are on your way to hell already and you don't know it. And whatever other things are there. The perfectionists called the reformers, they want to reform the world and themselves, and for them everything has to be by the book. These are the fundamentalists. Fundamentalistic Jews, fundamentalistic Christians, fundamentalistic Muslims, they are all of them the perfectionistic type. But you cannot say that only one ninth of the human society in those countries is perfectionistic. Sometimes they manage to impose this perfectionism on everybody else. Like the Talibans from Afghanistan. Before They are going in the same direction. I don't know if they can do it, because it's later in Kali Yuga today. But before the Americans took over Afghanistan, the Talibans, just two, three years before, I was so amused and impressed to hear that, I read it in a newspaper in Thailand or in India or wherever I was at that time. The Talibans gave an order which was fulfilled by everybody in Afghanistan that everybody threw their te television out of the window in the middle of the street. Television was forbidden in Afghanistan, in the Taliban Afghanistan, because they simply said the American devils are brainwashing you with television. They smartly give you all sorts of movies and documentaries and other things, which each one of them is inserting a dart in the Quran. Each one of them is undermining a, a surah from the Quran somewhere, somehow. And therefore, it's better not to have that devil in your house. Well, not all of Afghanistan was perfectionistic. Only one-ninth of the people. But the other eight-ninths, they were afraid that they will be executed in public. And they threw their television anyway out of the window. Some of them were number sevens. They lived in Afghanistan and they would have liked to have drugs, sex and rock and roll. It was very difficult to have drugs, sex and rock and roll in the 17th century Europe in France, under Louis XIV, Le Roi Soleil, the Sun King, as a peasant, as a simple farmer. And therefore, that's why I'm saying, so a yogi, either practitioner of yoga or teacher of yoga, the perfectionists are the greatest teachers. Oh my goodness, if in Paschimottanasana you keep your feet one centimeter closer than what your teacher tells you, you are a sinner and you destroyed your yoga. It's like your yoga went out of the window. Because Swamiji showed us Paschimottanasana like that. You know what? I love those teachers. For me, they do a great job for the school. Because they convey the message perfectionistically. 
But it doesn't mean that when you go at home, you are a perfectionist. Maybe your teacher is, and your teacher does not want to deviate one millimeter. And that's why I made him or her teacher, because they will respect what I dictated to them. As a teacher, and even me, as a teacher of teachers, I have to be a little bit perfectionistic, because otherwise, by now, in Agama, you would have had 25 different Paschimottanasana styles all over the world. And we probably anyway have about 10. But at least not 25, because I chose some perfectionistic teachers, and I told them, when you see somebody who is going too much into sex, drugs, and rock and roll and wild, you slap them over the head, and you tell them not to do that, just because Swami said so. But a practitioner or a teacher who is an altruist, that's one of the names for number two. An altruist wants to serve people, tries to heal cancers and frigidity or whatever. An altruist, if they don't have students, they feel empty because they cannot do yoga for somebody else. The altruists cannot do yoga alone in their house, but they have to go and do yoga for 20 people. For 20 people, they can do it. For themselves, they cannot do it. Which is definitely very skewed when Buddhist scriptures, they say, first, save yourself. Even the Vedas, they say, first, save yourself. How do you want to be a messiah and an altruist, a selfless messiah, when you haven't taken care of yourself first? But that's not number two. Number two is pathologically possessed by the need to do it selflessly, altruistically. And the number three is the achiever, the competitive. Ah, I heard that Walter did a hundred with Yana Bandas last week every day. This week I'll do 125. Simply because whatever somebody does, it puts a chili in your ass and you cannot sleep in the night. You have nightmares that people are doing more than you, that people are achieving more than you, that people are having sex more than you, that people are reading more than you. And then you do it. And it's a torture. And it's a pain in the ass. But then after you've done the 125 with Yana Bandas, you feel like God loves you. You feel like you are deserving. Because somewhere in your primitive brain, somewhere in the structure of, that, of your soul, that spoke is the most activated one. And that's what guides you in life. Competitiveness. Some practitioners or teachers can be individualists. We call them artists or romantics. Uh, you taught me Paschimottanasana, but when I go at home, I have a way of doing it, which Arch Archangel Gabriel came last night and told me of how to do an advanced Paschimottanasana, which beats even my yoga teacher and even Swami. No, it's like I have 
my own way of doing Paschimottanasana. You can't stop these people. As much as the teacher is a perfectionist, and the perfectionistic teacher would kill their artistic disciples, would say, man, I can't talk to you. I'm teaching you one thing. Three days later, I find you doing some improvised things of your own creation. These people, if they don't do something different, even if it's wrong, sometimes it's wrong, they will change the Banda Triampra Kriya, and you'll say, I dreamt that you have to put a finger behind your right ear like this. And it actually destroys the effect of Banda Triam. But they do it anyway. Because for them, originality, this thing that I am me, I am free, I do things my way, it's like a pathology. It's like people are possessed by it. I have to do it my own way. And then there are the observers who wish to disappear. The observers are the typical Indian sadhus who never took contact. Perhaps Milarepa could be an example of a bit of an observer, like living 30 kilometers away from everybody else, makes you an observer. This is the best breed for hermits, for people who stay 12 years in the dark, for people who have very small bungalows, houses, rooms, very minimalistic habitation, very minimalistic clothes, very people who live... Even when they live in New York, they live in a small cave of their own. And they don't go to parties, they don't go to social events, they don't go... But they watch them from afar, they can read about them on internet, and then they will criticize them. They will say, look what people came to do today. Like, I am holily holding myself in my cave here in New York, and look at the world, how crazy... It has got. This is the observer who draws their strength from their isolation, from their hermitage. And the next is the loyalist. And the loyalist wants to be loyal to a cause. Like Peter, who said, Lord, wherever you go, I will follow you. He wanted to be loyal to Jesus Christ. And in the end, he was. He had a moment of weakness when they arrested Jesus and after they crucified him. And then when he came back to his senses, he said, what have I done? And then he was loyal until he died. That's a loyalist. A person who needs to be loyal to someone or to something. They would do yoga, but they want to do yoga because they want to be loyal to Swami Vivekananda Sarasvati. They want to be loyal to Agama, and they want to be loyal to the Indian Shaiva tradition of yoga. And that makes them feel that if they do that, God will love them and take them to paradise. And if they can't show loyalty, then they are assholes. They are traitors. And skipping, because I'm skipping on purpose over this pleasure-seeking Number seven, then some people are a leader. There are people, if they can't be the leader of a sect, the leader of an organization, the leader of a chapter, the leader of a yoga school, the chief teacher somewhere, they are sick and they die. They get a hepatitis and they die. Because for them, the only thing is to lead, lead, 
lead, lead. I meet constantly a number of people who have this thing. If they cannot lead, if people don't listen to them, no, you say, why did you go from there? They were not listening to me. Who the fuck are you that people should listen to you? You could say, I'm the most humble person in the world. I don't even exist. So I don't never expect that people will listen to me because I am a sinner and I want to redeem my sins. But not the leader. The leader, if you don't lead to them, they go somewhere else and they make a church of their own, a sect, an organization, a family, a clan, a country, whatever they can. And last but not least, the peacemaker, the number nine, is also, it's the one who is trying to be a comforter. Like, come on, you know, things can be good as well. Let's make peace and this and that. These are very nice people. Very, very nice people. But nevertheless, no, they are people who all the time, they need this. They need to be involved into some conflict to appease it. That's the last of the nine blessings of Jesus. Blessed be the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. No? So, there is a temperament called peacemaker. There are people who try to make peace, but very few people realize it's a pathology. It's a typology. And if you cannot escape from your own typology, then you are the prisoner of it. You say, I cannot stop being perfectionistic. You should try, or at least reading good books of the Enneagram, you should try to mitigate it and to deal with it, to know how to do, to apply your typology in a spiritual way. So now we have our Walter. What is the path of pleasure in his spiritual evolution? Because Walter is like Narcissus of Hermann Hesse. He fornicates, he drinks, he lives a bohemian life. The other guy is praying day and night and fasting. And he's celibate. And he's not a perfectionist. And he doesn't understand why some people are perfectionistic. And Walter is perhaps not very compassionate. He doesn't feel like he's a helper. Oh, helping other people is the... Hey, fuck you with your... No? It's like, I don't want to help. I don't feel like helping too much. Yes, I'm a good person. And when they directly ask for help, if I can, I will support them. So I'll not be an asshole. But I don't feel like I want to be Mother Teresa. Wake up at 5 o'clock every morning and cook food. No, after a year, I would get bored. I want to do something else. Yeah? Maybe I want to drink wine and listen to rock and roll. Maybe it's a number seven. Not very compassionate and not competitive. Should Agama be the greatest yoga school in the world? Yeah, perhaps in my soul I think it is. But as money, as attendance, especially after 2018, it's not. And some people don't give a shit. They say, you know what? Because there are not 20,000 students in the school, we can meet with Swami and eat a Tom Yam soup with him. If there were 20,000 people, we couldn't anymore. So actually, keep Agama small, if possible, because it gives more privileges to the people who are in. 
So there are people who would consider that a competitive attitude is their worst enemy. It's like, no, 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 no. I don't gain anything if we just push and push and push and push and push. It's not about competitiveness. And not a romantic poet. Uh, I learned about Tantra. That's a classical one. But Tantra, for me, is not like what it is for these guys. Everybody is idiot. You are the poetic, the poet the romantic poet who understood it in a way which nobody will ever understand it this way. You are having the most intimate understanding. Even your teacher cannot compete with you in that. Not an observer from a hilltop. It's not a person who wants to sit in a hermitage and hear that the Second World War happened five years ago. You know, oh, there was a World War meanwhile. I was meditating here. Never heard about it, you know. Not a loyal apostle. Walter is not a loyal apostle. He simply says, I don't have this feeling of serving. Not yearning for leadership. There are people, as soon as they come to Agama, they try to take over. And if they cannot, they run away. Because it's not my baby, you know. If I cannot run it, then it's like I'm dissatisfied. They are here for leadership. And not a comforter. Like those people are quarreling. Let them fucking quarrel. I would like to see them fighting physically a little bit to see who is right. You know, it's like I love conflict. When I see two people having conflict, I think something good will come out of it. Let the fuckers kill each other and one will survive. You know, it's like, let's see. There are people who don't want to comfort other people and they are not feeling like they are peacemakers. Like, I don't care. Oh, Ukrainians are fighting with the Russians. Let them fight until both of them are two asshole countries. Let them both disappear. Give some nukes to Ukraine so that the Ukrainians will nuke the Russians and the Russians will nuke the Ukrainians. Then we have a lot of land for agriculture. You can donate it to the Germans because they wanted it in the Second World War anyway. Give all of Ukraine and Russia to Germany because they will make the best wheat in the world. No, it's the granary of Europe and of the world. If you give it to the Germans, it will be three times better than with the chaotic Ukrainians and with the chaotic Russians. You know, like why would I want them to stop when I dislike both of them? I dislike both of them. So let them die, you know. Let them, you know, give it to the Swiss. Make Russia and make them Switzerland. Swiss farmers will perform miracles in Ukraine and on the Russian fields. You know, that's why I say, so our Walter is none of those in spirituality. That's why, yes, we can see that Some parts of Tantra are the only spiritual parts which are made for Walter. Because if you put Walter in a Christian monastery, there are very few alternatives for an Epicurean or a hedonist to live a successful spiritual life. Here, there was a story. There was a monk in the Fathers of the Desert And he was considered the lazy man of the monastery. Like everybody was practicing prayer. 
And you know the prayer, you can count it by the hours. How many hours of prayer do you do daily? Oh, minimum four hours. Good. You've earned your bread in our monastery. This guy apparently was doing close to none. And then he was dying. And he was joyful. And the other monks, you know, they had refrained from fucking him. Because it's not allowed in the Christian mentality. Like if a guy is lazy, you don't go and whip him. You have to look at your own devil. You have to look at your own demons. So the people said, in their mind, they said, we, Walter is a lazy boy. And we are very sorry for him. And we can pray for him. But we are not going to punish him. Because we are not the... And you know, when people die, they tend to be worried, you know, because that's the time when you are going to get the accounts for a whole lifetime. And death is a very radical process which sends you somewhere. And it can be a good death or a bad death. And the other, the people came to him and they said, look, sorry, you are dying, we, you know, we know. And we are here to pray for you, to help. But we are astonished by the fact that you are shining happily. And sorry, excuse us for telling this, which should be an obvious fact for you as well. We know you haven't been the most industrious monk in this monastery. So we thought you'd be alarmed. Can you tell us the secret why you are happy? And he told them, all my life, I preserved one discipline. Never to pass any judgment on anybody else, you guys or anybody else in the world, because Jesus said, do not judge and you shall not be judged. So you understand you have to be good, but in your own way. This man, perhaps he was a number seven. He was not a hard working, but he took a peculiar tapas on him, which was not involving persevering effort day by day. He found, he looked in the mirror when he was 20 years old. He found out that he was chaotic and not persevering. And then he asked Jesus, what can a non-persevering person do to be saved? Because you have created number sevens. And if you have created them, you have to give them away to salvation. I want salvation, but I am of a peculiar typology. So how does this typology reach salvation? And he found another way, not a way based on perfectionism, or a way based on competitiveness, or a way based on isolation, 
or others similar there. Therefore, there is a way for Walter. And we know if Walter would go to live in the desert, St. John the Baptist, the last of the great prophets before Jesus, who was contemporary with Jesus, St. John the Baptist says, the, say the Chronicles, he was living in the desert, he was dressed in the leaves of the fig tree, he was eating grasshoppers and honey. That was the only thing available in the Jewish desert. Honey from wild bees, which was quite difficult to get probably. Grasshoppers, insects. Well, if somebody would tell you you want to see God eat grasshoppers and honey all your life, and you wear just a tent made of leaves as a cloth on you, many people would be dissatisfied and they would say, I would like to search to have a second opinion. I would like another spiritual doctor to give me a diagnosis for my soul because this solution, like, I know it will work, but grasshoppers, for God's sake, you know, it's like, I'm not contemplating eating grasshoppers too happily. And thus, what I'm trying to tell you here is there is a path for Walter. And that path is a path of looking at the pleasant part of life. For example, the tantric text Vigyana Bhairava, when it describes the sexual union as a method of spiritual emancipation, it says the pleasure which you feel during coitus, let's stay scientific and medical, during intercourse, the pleasure which you feel, it's holy. It can make you into a heroin addict, or if you use it with measure and in an intelligent way, it can take you to God. And it is because this pleasure of sex is the same pleasure which Shiva and Parvati have when they have sex. And therefore, your orgasm is just a tiny little fragment from the cosmic orgasm of Shiva and Parvati. And therefore, every time when you have sex, go into that pleasure, connect it to Sahasrara, because that's where Shiva and Shakti are making love, in the crown chakra, and connect them, and report them, and meditate, and sublime. And in this way, sex is not a source of decadence anymore. Sex becomes a source of salvation. That's why the Tantric tradition, which is one of the most open traditions on this planet, has accepted Lucifer as well. Lucifer is not the devil anymore. If there are Venusian or other kinds of pleasurable things, they are okay. Good food is okay. But now think, the Romans had a dish which was made from nightingale tongs. A nightingale tongue is a crumb of flesh probably this big. To make a meal for a party, they had to kill 40,000 nightingales for one dish. 
in Zorba, the Greek, you have the absolutely hilarious story when King George, one of the British kings, visited Crete. In those days, Greece was about to become independent from the Turkish Ottoman Empire and all that. And there was a French-English jurisdiction. So basically, the British were like kings even in Greece. And King George, I think the, the follower of Queen Victoria, he visited. And then the monks of the leading monastery, together with the mayor, they thought, what is the most incredible thing that we, which is Crete, typical Crete, that we can offer to King George. And uh, it was a soup, in case you didn't read Zorba the Greek, it was a soup which was made of rooster testicles. The testicles of the rooster are smaller than a pea. They are about the size of a lentil, of a small lentil. To make a soup of that, they simply had to neuter all the roosters in Crete. There was a general decree, and everybody caught their roosters, sent them, and there in the kitchen, they, they scooped, they neutered thousands of roosters, and there was enough for one soup. And when they served lunch for King George, he had a different soup from everybody else. And it looked like shit. It was a brownish soup, which was like a liquid thing, and with just some bizarre black things floating in that soup, which are the testicles of roosters. And he saw that everybody else at his table had uh, some sort of minestrone, you know, some colorful, nice Greek soup. And he thought they were making fun of him. He thought that they were uh, giving him the finger. And he asked, like, why do I have this shitty-looking soup? And the guy said, my God, sir, there is no more one rooster with balls in this island. You know, it's like we had to neuter all the, just for that one dish of soup for you. You know, that's the most delicious. Okay, then he was curious. Like, okay, let's see the testicle soup from Crete, from the island of Crete. No? So that's why I say, no, there is pleasure and pleasure. The pleasure of sex. The pleasure of food. The pleasure of the five senses. The pleasure of so many others is there. And there is always a danger of abuse. If you like cocaine, you might have too much. If you like heroin, you might take too much. If you like sex, you might chase a bit too much of that. If you like food, you might get to be 200 kilos heavy because you can't stop from eating delicious food. And the list could continue. And thus... This path of pleasure has its own pitfalls. The path of Goldmund, Narcis, or otherwise said Hermann Hesse, located it like a genius. He said, what's the problem with Goldmund, the serious ascetic? And he looked at him and he said, how can you die without having found your mother? You know, like you die without samsara. You die without Maya. You die, somebody was asking me, is Maya our friend? How can we make it our friend and not an enemy? No, that's what Narcis says in that novel. How can you die without your mother? 
No. Where is the feminine? Can you die masculine and feminine? Like Arda Narishvara, like Shiva who is man and woman? What have you found yourself truly? Or have you found only half of yourself? And you'll still have to work another 20 lifetimes to also slowly find the other half as well. And thus, that is why Tantra, especially the left-hand Tantra, and the Tantra which is taught in the Indian and Tibetan environment, is a wonderful science. Because it gives us access to spirituality with pleasure. You don't have to be afraid of pleasure. Now I'm putting it the other way around. There are people who want only pleasure and they have to make sure that they don't fall into abuse. But there are people who are afraid of pleasure because they are perfectionistic or competitive or something. Tantra is also an amazing offer for the people who are afraid of that because being afraid of that is also an abuse. But it's an abuse in the opposite direction. It's an abuse of not doing abuse. It's a non-abuse abuse. Because you are perfectionistic and you say, I have to be perfect. <clears throat> in this way, therefore, we are talking here about an integration of Shakti. Some people were saying, we are interested in the Bhava Samadhi, the Samadhi which includes the world, the Samadhi which is not only based on the void and on the Purusha of Patanjali, but which is global, which is with the eyes open. And then, if you eat an apple, that apple is Shiva. That apple is Shakti as well, because of the taste and the energy in it. And therefore, when you eat an apple, when you snort your cocaine or whatever it is, it's God. And therefore, you can commune with the whole universe, should you choose to. No? Some people may try it, and they say, oh yeah, I've tried marijuana, and I became very svadhisthanistic. Fuck if I touch it again. I don't touch it. Not because it's a pleasure, and it's wrong, but simply because I personally disliked it profoundly. I, it's like, no, that's not who I want to be. I don't want to be that negligent, hippie, Jamaican, Rastafarian imbecile that I become when I smoke weed. No? But it's not because you condemn it. It's simply because you say, it's not my baby. It's not something which I like. And therefore, I want to give you the good news. In Tantra, there is a path for Walter. There is a path of pleasure for the people seeking for spirituality. Should any one of be, I don't know why I see a big percentage in Agama, because we don't practice all sorts of painful discipline and spanking people's asses too much and things like this. Uh, Agama, I'm not, I'm not going to use the expression to say it's an easy way, because it's not. There is a ton of yoga to be learned and you have to rise your kundalini, and you have to obtain the actual effects, because otherwise it's all a fairy tale. So when you ask our advanced students, you see that when they do our yoga, for them 
it works. And Kundalini moves and the chakras get activated and they do experience improved states of consciousness. And the people who did not manage to feel this, they went somewhere else. They are now practicing or they stopped practicing. But some of them are maybe practicing somewhere else. And that's why I would not say it's an easy path because I would be lying. Because climbing the mountain is climbing the mountain. But you can climb the mountain whistling a happy melody or you can climb the mountain clenching your teeth and gnashing your teeth and shedding tears and suffering and thinking about the muscle, the muscle fever which will hit you in a few hours from all that terrible physical effort that you are doing. Thus, I wanted to put this into perspective because it's not written in the yoga books. People like Osho Rajneesh and others, they saw it. They held conferences about it. They even taught certain methods. Osho, in those days he was called actually Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh, and I like much better that name than Osho, which to me is a hippie, ridiculous name. But Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh was a real religious Indian name. That's how my temperament is. And he was, in one of his lectures, he mentioned how he got a guy who was tense. I don't know. It was not working. He had problems. He was addicted. And he went to Swami Shivananda. That was happening in the 50s because Shivananda died in 1963. And Shivananda put him on Oshava diet, on two hours of Hatha Yoga, on a Sattvic diet, on waking up at midnight and doing one extra meditation, on a lot of shit which was painful. And this guy did it for three months and then he ran out of Shivananda's ashram squealing and the problem was not solved. And Osho Rajneesh gave him a ridiculous thing, if I remember correctly, could be another person that I'm talking about, to do pranayama by imagining that he's sucking some beautiful tits of a young, beautiful girl. <laughs> Dirty old man. No? And Rajneesh claimed that he almost got enlightened by sucking those boobs. Not real boobs, imaginary boobs. And you say, yeah man, the yoga of the dirty old man. You have to imagine a young girl and suck her boobs. You know, it's like, come on, how dirty it can be. You know, like this is Indian perversion. I can imagine an Indian old man. All his dream is to suck teats. You know, it's like, come on, man. Get him to therapy. You know, this guy needs to be put in an institution. Shivananda tried to go institutional on him, like to make him punish himself for his obsessions. And Rajneesh gave him the number seven thing. He said, suck teats, man. Imagine, sit teats and suck teats and so on. And he claimed it worked much better. Therefore, no, while, for example, other people, everybody who has been to the traditional early Iyengar classes, Iyengar was considered to be a Nazi by the yoga teachers because the Iyengar original yoga classes... They were like a boot camp. Like the teachers were educated to shout at you, to push you, 
to beat you with a stick when your Paschimottanasana was not with legs straight or something, they would go really hard on you. you know? And after you would do a torture class of 1 hour and 15 minutes or 1 hour and 30 minutes, Ayengar, who lived in Pune, the city of Rajnish, he would say, if you go with Rajnish one hour and a half, will you feel as good as you feel now? Competitive and perfectionist. You know, if you are competitive and perfectionist, for God's sake, go to Iyengar. Agama doesn't have too much of that. Maybe we will get one of the main teachers of Agama in one year from now or in a hundred years from now to be a super competitive perfectionist teacher who somehow will resist this loose environment from Agama and then will say, now it's time for me to make Heil Hitler Agama. You know, like we can do the Third Reich Agama here, you know. And they might do it. And there will be people who would love it. There will be people who say, when you go there, they really spank you, man. They're there, you are not fucking around. When you go there, it's like they, they are on a boot camp with you. Guess what? There are many people who left me and Agama because we don't have an ashram where we can pe- keep, keep people on Oshava diet forever and where we can have a boot camp. No, those people don't stay with me because they feel that I am not uh, churning their potential enough. You know, I am not uh, squeezing their sponge enough. You know, I'm not, you know. And for them it's like, yeah, I've been with Swami. Swami was kind of loose and I lost 20 years around there and in the end I'm not enlightened and I wasted my life. If that's the case, go away quickly, quickly. You know, because you shouldn't come 20 years later and tell me that. It's just that the styles of different teachers, the styles of different schools, the styles of different teachings, they are different. In Kashmir, the commentators, they say, winter or six months long in Kashmir, and the Kashmirians lived in the most beautiful place on earth. And in the winter, they stayed by the window and they were looking at the snowflakes. And they got into samadhi because they knew how to use the beauty and the chill out and the snowflakes and other such things for enlightenment. But they were not doing Ayengar yoga in Kashmir in the 10th century. Definitely not in the winter. I have been in Kashmir in 1st of April and I almost froze to death there. You know, it's like not having any source of heat and the temperature going down to almost zero. No, then you see. And then I said, you know, what yoga to do? Like, really? I and the friends which were there, the only thing which we could manage to do was 10, 20, 30 with the Anabandas. In that cold... That was the only thing which worked. Some a little bit more adventurous. After doing 30 with the Anabandas, they were doing a bit of headstand. But to do a meditation, 
you needed about five blankets around you. Because otherwise, your toes would freeze. That's why I say there are styles and styles in yoga, in tantra, in spirituality. And yes, there is a path of pleasure in spiritual evolution. And thus, you will choose eventually what is your path. You will be a leader, a competitor, a reformer, a romantic artist, whatever you will be. But you know that the path of pleasure is part of the equation, even if it's not 100% of what you do, at least you know that it is legitimate and it is part of the tradition and there are types of human beings which may like that path and of course they will not go the dissolute way of Freddie Mercury because Freddie Mercury is not a success example perhaps except financially but otherwise no, no, even musically It's just a Kali Yuga political politeness to say that Freddie Mercury and his dudes, they composed great music. It's not great. It's toilet music from a yoga standpoint. In the chakras, it's not even giving you a good Manipura or a good Zvadhisthana or a good Muladhara. It's crap. But uh, many people who had the same crap in their chakras resonated with that music and they said, man, this is exactly how I feel. Yeah, sure, you will share the same hell with Freddie Mercury when you die. So that's your problem, you know, that's not that, that popularity doesn't mean it's right, especially in Kali Yuga. But that doesn't mean you have to throw the baby with the water in the tub because there does exist a path of pleasure Pleasure is not prohibited. Different pleasurable things are perfectly okay. And in the moment when they are dosed correctly, like Queen Victoria's little drug, what should we call it? Habit. Was fine. Because she lived a long, good life. She never was uh, accused that she snorted too much cocaine She took a submachine gun and she went through London and killed people in an excess of cocaine overdose. And then they had to lock her into an institution for three days until she calmed down from the OD of cocaine. Whatever she did, she did it like a British queen. You move your hand with measure. You know, queens never greet like this. This is what peasants do, yeah? Queens just greet like this. There has to be moderation in everything. So she had moderation in cocaine as well. And it served her well, apparently. Because historically, nobody says that that was a kingdom under a queen who was one of the worst drug addicts of history. Thus, uh, you have to open your mind, understand the fact that God has created a whole rainbow of human typologies and of paths to enter the kingdom of God. And therefore, with yoga and with tantra, you can emphasize exactly your way, what works for you, what is good for you. 
meditate deeply on the path of pleasure and see if in your life there is pleasure, how much, if there is excess, if you are ready to accept some, if you judge yourself very badly when you have some, and all the questions associated with what I told you tonight. Of course, in the end, one day, you will probably take a test and find out what your Enneagram typology is, and in this way, you will be able to evaluate more from this standpoint. Again, the purpose of tonight was not to call your attention on the Enneagram. I used it as an instrument because it is the best which expresses this point of view. But the point of it was that you should evaluate that there is a path of pleasure which might work for you or might work for your boyfriend or girlfriend or might work for your best friend or for somebody you know. And that's why we always have to understand the human nature as well as the divine will. I hope this lecture was of some use to you to see the spirituality in a happier way and in a more pleasurable way and at the same time to keep you in the middle from too much or too little so that one can reach the golden middle path which gives us access to enlightenment. With this, we have finished for tonight. Thank you all for joining. See you in the coming activities here in Agamemnon.